This episode of the Tech Money Podcast is sponsored by Capital Area Tax Consultants. Capital Area Tax Consultants is a virtual tax and accounting firm that specializes in helping high net worth individuals navigate the complexities of the tax code. While our team of tax pros are well-versed in all things tax, our areas of expertise include rental real estate and equity compensation. With our comprehensive tax planning services, our one goal is to help clients maximize savings and minimize their tax liability each year. At Capital Area Tax Consultants, we believe in pricing transparency and flat fees. Before engaging with us, you'll receive an upfront quote in black and white with a description of any services to be performed. This way, there are no hidden surprises. So don't wait. Reach out to us today to experience a better approach to taxes at www.capgllc.com. Again, that web address is www.capgllc.com. Welcome to the Tech Money Podcast, where the worlds of technology and personal finance collide. Hosted by certified financial planner, speaker, blogger, and self-proclaimed personal finance nerd, Malcolm Etheridge. Each episode aims to make you just a little bit smarter about your money, all from the perspective of the tech professional. Without further delay, here's your host. Hey there, listeners. Malcolm here. And on today's show, we're talking about investing. More specifically, we're talking about the dangers of allowing your emotions to guide your investment decisions and ways to help you ignore the impulse to take action every single time the stock market moves in either direction. The underlying theme of the stock market and the way it functions is that we are all rational actors in a rational world, acting on the very same publicly available information at the very same time. The assumption is that people will always, always, always make the right decisions, and that if they don't, it's only because they don't have the right information. But the reality is we are all irrational beings living in an irrational world, and we frequently do things that are against our own best interests, such as selling stocks during market crashes and locking in losses, or worrying about cutting our spending only when we have plenty of money and failing to prioritize saving when we don't have enough. However, For those who are able to silence that voice, telling them to act and act fast and instead stay disciplined in their approach, the stock market can be a very rewarding place. Now, I am by no means an expert on the subject of behavioral finance, and I I didn't even take enough psychology classes in college to begin to fake it on this podcast. So I decided I better call up someone who is in order to have this conversation. Dr. Daniel Crosby is the chief behavioral officer at Orion Solutions, where he specializes in studying the intersection between money, mindfulness, and meaning. Dan received both his Bachelor of Science and Doctorate at Brigham Young University, where he studied behavioral psychology. He has also written numerous books on behavioral finance, including The Behavioral Investor, The Laws of Wealth, and You're Not That Great, which, by the way, is one of my favorite book titles ever. Dan also hosts his own podcast called The Standard Deviations. And so with that brief introduction, welcome Dr. Dan Crosby to the Tech Money Podcast. Malcolm, thank you for having me. Yeah, I I appreciate you uh, agreeing to come on and do this. This should be fun. Uh, To get us kicked off here, I breezed through your resume pretty quickly uh, in my intro there. What else should I have included? You know, you did did a great job. I'm super proud of the the work I've done in, in 
taking these behavioral concepts and try and make them sort of serve the masses. So it really, my books are the things that I'm most proud of. The laws of wealth and the behavioral investor, I think are, are the best place for the average person to get a, get a flavor of my work. Yep. Uh, but you know, there's, there's over 200 different behavioral biases that have been documented. These deviations from rationality that you talked about at the outset. So that's, I think a great place for, for folks to get a taste for, for a simplified version of how that applies to their lives. So as I understand it in doing prep work for this uh, interview, I understand also that your dad was a financial planner, which is how you got interested in doing this work. But he, then, you yeah. just, then you decided to go against following his shoes. What happened there? My dad still is a financial advisor. Okay. He's, okay. Uh, he's still practicing and doing a great job. But yeah, I grew up in a house where we talked about investing around the dinner table. And I thought that was something that I would want to do professionally as well. So mm-hmm. I, I set out to do that when I went to college. Uh, but in my first year of college, I absolutely fell in love with my psychology courses. Mm. Uh, after my first year of college, I I spent two years abroad in, in Manila, Philippines on a church service mission. And there just got even further immersed in a different culture, different ways of living, different ways of moving through the world. And just really became fascinated with with human behavior and the human condition. So I came back uh, with sort of a renewed interest in psychology, uh, and then went went on to get a PhD, but uh, with an aim to be a clinical psychologist. But about halfway through that that clinical psychology PhD, you know, I said, "Look, I, I love thinking deeply about why people do the things that they do, but I don't mm-hmm. know that I want to do it in a medical context." And that's when my dad introduced me without knowing it was called that to, to the world of behavioral economics. So stay there for a second. Can you just explain to us what behavioral economics is and how that work ties into personal finance? Well, you actually did a great job of, of setting it up. So behavioral finance, which is a, a subset of behavioral economics, mm-hmm. just studies uh, financial markets that account for the messiness of human behavior. So just as you said in in your intro, the original sort of econometric models were all based on this idea of utility maximization, which just Mm -hmm. basically says that people will always and in all cases act in their own best interests, uh, which is certainly not the case. We see when people, you know, you laugh because you and I have probably done 20 stupid things today that that didn't maximize utility. And so all that behavioral finance and behavioral economics are, are the study of finance or the study of economics in a way that accounts for ways in which human beings don't always act in their best interests. Yeah. So interestingly enough, to your point about being in college and being introduced to this work at the right time, I came to learn about behavioral economics after I had already started my career in financial services. But I tell people, like, if I could actually go back and talk to myself in college when I made the decision, uh, to, to change my major and focus on business. I wish I had been able to tell me to minor, at least in uh, behavioral economics, because it's so fascinating to me how the human brain works sometimes, like how, uh, what's it, heuristics helps us. great decisions during life or death situations where fight or flight are the only possible answers. But then they also sometimes help us make bad decisions about things like money or our health or certain social settings or whatever. So it is a very interesting uh, science, a, a very interesting way to apply what you've learned in the psychology realm. Um, 
to me as well. So no, I'm I'm certainly uh, jealous that you got pointed in that direction at the at the very right time. But uh, according to the textbooks that I read early in my career as a financial planner, right? Behavioral finance focuses on explaining why investors often appear to lack self-control, right? You were talking about doing things against our own best interest 20 times a day, right? We're acting against our own best interest and making decisions based on things that are other than facts. Um, And this is why the the, the literal definition from one of my Kaplan textbooks that I found, um, I didn't write that, by the way, was about how... uh, it's important to study uh, the way that investors lack self-control. Um, uh, but the the question, I guess, I have buried in there with all of that lead up is why do so many people make decisions regarding money that are inherently math problems, but they base them on everything but math? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and the answer has a lot to do with, with how we've evolved. And you, you look at why do people make bad decisions about their health or about their money or anything else. And we human beings are wired for immediacy. Mm-hmm. You know, we are wired for immediate payoffs and we are wired to maximize pleasure in the short term. So we do things like overspend and eat donuts that are pleasurable in the moment, but if taken too far, have deleterious long-term consequences. So, I mean, yeah, you, you eat that donut for, for the 10 minutes you're eating it, it, it feels absolutely amazing. But you know, you eat a donut every day of your life for 40 years and you've got you've got a problem potentially. And this the same is true about money, whether it's uh, trading in the short term or spending money when we should be saving money. It feels great for a minute to get mm-hmm. that new pair of shoes or you know, whatever it is that you want. Uh, but you wake up 60 years old and, and suddenly you have a problem. And so we have to really do things that don't come naturally to us at all if we're going to be good investors and and even good savers because all of the brain research on on saving something as simple as setting aside money shows that from a a neurological level we perceive it as a loss Mm -hmm. you know you you saving a hundred dollars and you spending a hundred dollars have the same sort of impact on the brain, uh, but in one case you have a new pair of shoes, and in the other case you've got effectively nothing, at least yeah. right now. So it's everything we're asked to do is really, really hard from from sort of an evolutionary perspective. We're wired for certainty. We're wired for immediacy. Being a good investor requires you to think long term and to take on risk and uncertainty. I like where you're going with that because one of the most interesting or maybe even amazing things to me about investing in general is how counterintuitive the best investment advice actually is. As an example, the act of rebalancing feels pretty counterintuitive. You're essentially selling off some of your winners to buy more of your losers in a portfolio. But it's been proven time and time again that over a 10-year period, the investor who rebalances will undoubtedly perform, outperform the one who doesn't. So it's interesting that as you say that, like, very few people do those sort of counterintuitive feeling things, but successful investors all do them. Yeah. So this is the great investor. Howard Marks refers to this as the perversity of risk, which is at a gut level, 
we feel the least risk when there is actually the most and we feel the most when there is actually the least. So human beings have something called recency bias, which mm -hmm. is we tend to project the immediate past into the future indefinitely. If I meet Malcolm and he's, uh, you know, kind and generous and intelligent, uh, one time, I assume that the next time I meet him, he'll be all those same things again. And so when you when you ask people like recent research into into what people think the market will do for the next 10 years, well, people think the market will get 17% a year annualized for the next 10 years, mm -hmm. because that's what the market has done for the last few years. And so the tricky thing about markets is the truest words in investing tend to be this too shall pass. Hmm. So, you yeah. know, t times of great abundance tend to be followed by times of, of more scarcity and times of great scarcity tend to be followed by abundance. And so we're sort of wired to think that we should follow our gut. And in many endeavors, your gut serves you well. Like when you're trying to size up a new person that you've met, your, your intuition is probably right. Yeah. Uh, but when it comes to making investment decisions, your gut is almost 180 degrees of, of what you should do. And learning to ignore that and even run in the opposite direction, as you've suggested, is is key to being a good investor. Do you have any, any recommendations or, or uh, sort of rules of thumb for how investors can force themselves to avoid the, the trap that is recency bias? You know, one of the best things that we can do is make our biases work for us. So we know that we are status quo prone. Like mm -hmm. when we set something in place, we like to leave it. We're lazy. Um, you know, all these things that, that sound negative. But if you automate the process of withdrawing a little money every two weeks and mm -hmm. uh, investing it in a sensible way, you can actually use that status quo proneness and that laziness to your advantage and, you know, wake up 20 or 30 years hence a, a millionaire. And so anytime you can take a behavioral tendency you have and make it work for you instead of against you, uh, you're going to be in really good stead. So laziness, status quo proneness can lead you to never get started investing, hmm. but it can also lead you to stay invested once you get started uh, and, and it can help you to overcome some of that recency bias. I saw an article in Barron's a few weeks ago where they interviewed an economics uh, professor at Duke, and he said the way he keeps himself from acting on his impulse to trade during a down market is to enter in the wrong password a few times on his brokerage app so that his the, the app locks him out. And then he can't get in to make any trades, so there's no point to even opening up the app anymore. And so he sort of forgets about it. And I thought that was a pretty good life hack. Like it's It's one of those things that you know, similar to automating, it's a life hack that helps us help ourselves. So this this is a great point. And again, to to our previous conversation, when when you think about what you want with respect to your money, you're like, I want uh, I want transparency. I want ease of access. I want liquidity. Mm -hmm. All of these things that are ostensible goods and things that we would say we want fly in the face of us making good decisions. I give my wife. Uh, my wife sets the password for our online brokerage account. I can't mm. get into it um, for that for that very same reason. And if we ever get a quarterly statement in paper, I tear it up and don't read it mm. because I know that even though I've written three books on this stuff, I'm very anxious when it comes to my money and most people are. And so I take pains to try and get out of my own way. 
So if I understand you correctly and I can put words in, in, in your mouth as you're talking and sort of sum up a little bit of where we just landed, it sounds like it's not necessarily about checking our emotions at the door. It's more creating these sort of uh, uh, barriers to, to entry in a way to help save ourselves from ourselves to avoid those traps that are com- constantly prompting us to, to take action. So that's, that's nicely summarized. And if I, can, if I can build on that a little bit, mm-hmm. every decision that you make is emotional. We know this from the research. Even folks who have uh, traumatic brain injuries and have the emotional processing centers of their brains damaged, they have trouble making the most inconsequential decisions. They can't can't pick out which flavor of ice cream they want because Mm. even, even a decision that low stakes has an emotional substrate to it. So we're always gonna be emotional. And what's amazing is we're more emotional about money than anything else. When we look at the brain scan literature, folks are more uh, activated by money than even sex, death, like other things that have strong excitatory power. Money has more excitatory power than even those sort of high, high profile, scary or exciting things to think about. Hmm. And so our, our intentions are always going to be pure, right? We, we have the right will, we have the right desires, but our emotions are going to override those unless we put practical blocks in place that keep us from making bad decisions. That is really interesting. Um, one of my own like life hacks that I've used in the past and always share with uh, an audience who asks me anything about uh, baseline uh, personal finance personal finance advice. I always tell the story of how, like when I was getting started in my, my career, I opened up a, a, a savings account at a credit union that is like inconveniently far away from where I live. And the only, uh, and I, so I, I had a part of my paycheck direct deposited directly into that, that account uh, every time I got paid, but I didn't sign up for online banking. I didn't uh, uh, even have any checks for this account. And so the only way that I could actually get money out of this account was to physically drive the 50 miles or whatever it took to get to this credit union when I needed money. And realistically, because you know bankers hours, by the time I could actually get off work and get to this place early enough to get the money out, I'd already decided like either it wasn't really an emergency anymore, or I figured out a different way to to settle it. And it's like those little those little things that we have to rely on to uh, again save ourselves from ourselves. I I suggest that people put at least three layers of uh, three layers of, of protection in place, and I, I call it my three E's. The first is education, right? Mm-hmm. That's that's important. We need to know how capital markets work. We need to know about how human behavior interfaces with the way we, we think about money. But education is necessary, but not sufficient because of something called the knowing doing gap. We know that in the US, doctors and nurses smoke at a higher rate than the hmm. general public. So like these people, who spend their whole lives studying, you know, what makes you healthy and spend their whole lives helping other people get healthy, leave the office and do something profoundly unhealthy. And the same, I'm not picking on anybody, the same thing's true of all of us in in different respects. 
So the second piece is the environment. And that's a lot of the things we've talked about. Having, <laughs> throwing away the key, throwing away the password, making yeah. your bank hard to get to, having a portfolio asset allocation that is, you know, conservative enough that you're not going to get rocked off the boat because of volatility. And then the last E is encouragement, which is having that financial advisor, having that coach in your corner who can help you keep you on the straight and narrow path, even when you're scared. And if you have those three things, if, if you know what you ought to do, you create an environment that's conducive to doing what you know is right. And then you put someone else in your corner, you're going to really, really up the odds of getting where you need to go. So another thing I wanted to talk to you about in, in, in getting prepared for this interview, I did some reading and came across uh, an interview that you did regarding COVID quarantine and the ways the pandemic has affected our money mindset. And so could you, could you give us a little bit about that? What have you noticed that has changed with regard to our money mindset over the past couple of years? So, you know, I live, I live here in Atlanta and at the height of COVID, uh, calls to mental health crisis lines in Atlanta were up 400%. Wow. And this was seen across the world that you, you saw similar stats in London and, and other places where we observed this. And, you know, there was COVID, COVID was complicated. The, the fallout, the response was complicated. But one of the, one of the primary things that we saw was loneliness and just relational disconnectedness. And we know that loneliness has a profound impact on our wellness, our, our physical wellness even. Um, people who are lonely, are the, the physical effects of loneliness are twice as damaging as obesity. It's, mm. it's the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. I mean, it's just really bad for you to be disconnected from, from people. And, and all of us were disconnected from, from people for for varying lengths of time and to varying degrees, depending yeah. on you know, you know where you lived and how you handled it. But you saw this play out in the markets. And what you saw was these investing collectives begin to emerge. And, and you know, with some of the meme stock trading and some of the really extraordinary behavior we saw there, mm -hmm. you saw people forming online collectives and, and sort of banding together in this uh you know this remote way to try and do what what they thought was some good in the world and, and the narrative that emerged was basically we could invest in a way that sticks it to the powers that be and and get rich in the process mm -hmm. and you saw a lot of that from people whose lives had been completely de-risked you know we were all stuck in our houses we there was <laughs> you couldn't bet on sports because there were no sports you know people want a little bit of intrigue they want a little bit of risk in their lives and yeah. you saw some really insane risk taking emerge in the markets when other elements of risk taking had been taken from their lives yeah it even became cool to show how much money you lost taking right a, a position in a, a a a stock yeah a symbol of sort of being part of the crowd you know yeah. being having diamond hands as it were are you seeing things go back to quote unquote normal at all already, or is it still too early to tell since we're technically still in, you know, this? I, it's, it's interesting because just this week, this, just the week that we're talking here, we've had a resurgence in some of these tech stock, these meme stock names, and a couple mm -hmm. of them were halted today uh, because of the extraordinary volatility. 
So I, I do think things are, are getting back to normal. I do think sort of met, our mental health is, is returning back to where, where it was before. Uh, but in some ways, there's, there's no way to unlearn the things that we learned during COVID. And I, I do think the world is forever changed in some ways. But I do expect that, that as we begin to live more normal lives, these things will start to normalize. You know, we, we even saw this in driving behavior last year. In, hmm. in, in 2021, people drove at about 80% of the level that they did pre-COVID. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet traffic accidents were about 125% of what they were pre-COVID. Wow. And so these, this, this anger, this frustration, this aggression, this risk-taking is emerging in new ways. And you're, you're really not just imagining that people are driving worse or that they're grumpier on airplanes. They, they really are. Hmm. That You may have just sort of reshaped or reframed the way that I was thinking about this whole thing. Like to me, the financial news and, you know, various documentaries and all kinds of stuff that's come out has tried to rationalize meme stock mania uh, by saying, you know, that younger people were fed up, were fed up with the house always winning and Wall Street taking from the poor and giving to the rich. And to me, I really just didn't think it was that deep. I thought since sports were on hold and that means sports betting was on hold, people turn their attention to the stock market because it was the next place that had the lights and sounds dinging and chirping like being in a casino. And once, you know, those with a large enough social media following made enough noise, it just attracted the attention of everybody else. But I think what you're saying is interesting that that's a, a more of a natural human instinct and a more human response to being isolated. And that sort of thing is that it creates more uh, aggressive and risky risk-taking behavior, if I'm understanding you right. Yeah, no, I think you've got it. The, the other thing I think we, we know that narratives move markets and the narrative behind the meme stocks was so incredible. It reminds me a bit of the, um, of the narrative behind Tesla as a, as a brand. And of mm -hmm. course, Tesla has had an incredible rise as a company. If you think about, if you drive a Tesla, you can say a couple of things simultaneously. You can say, you know, I'm sort of tech savvy. Mm -hmm. You can say I'm rich because Teslas are expensive. Mm -hmm. And you can say, I give, uh, you know, I give a darn about the earth. So anytime you can position yourself in a way that shows simultaneously some sort of righteousness, yeah. as well as some, some wealth, because usually when, when people boast about their wealth, it's, it's done in sort of an obnoxious way. That's sort of how we think of it. But if you can, uh, if you can get rich and, and do it in a pro-social sort of righteous way, that's a powerful one-two narrative. Mm. And that is definitely how the meme stock thing was positioned. Let's stick it to Wall Street. We're all going to get fabulously rich in the process. And uh, it's hard to beat that in, in terms of a compelling narrative. Yeah. It, it, and so I was actually thinking about it in past tense, and I probably just referred to meme stock mania, the Wall Street bets craze in past tense just now. But you, you're right that we're starting to see spikes of this every couple of weeks. Like if we just look at AMC and GameStop and names like that, that are the favorites of this collective. Uh, I, I was thinking that we're beyond this because I personally, in my day job, no longer have clients calling me up, trying to give me their stock suggestions or ask me to explain to them for a fourth time what Bitcoin is. So I thought the hysteria was over, but it 
to your point, it seems like it, it has these spikes where suddenly we're turning our attention there again. Is that sort of just, you know, folks trying to hold on to the, the, the fun that they had, or is that, you know, are we not so much out of the pandemic and the pandemic induced loneliness that we thought, like, is there a deeper issue there or is it just folks having a hard time letting go of a, a fun thing? You know, I think it's, it's, there's some nostalgia there now. Yeah. And, and, you know, far from, I had Spencer Jacob on my podcast who wrote the definitive book. He's a Wall Street Journal reporter and he wrote the definitive book about meme stock investing. And the other thing that you're going to see is contrary to the narrative that this is all folks trading from their parents' basements or whatever, and, you know, trying to get rich with their, with, with their allowance money. There was some big money in on this and there was oh, some yeah. big, big institutional investors who noticed these trends and, and tried to take advantage of them. So I think you've got a very complicated thing now. You've got certainly plenty of retail investors who are um, still compelled by this narrative or, or nostalgic or trying to make their money back as the case may be. Uh, but then you've also got huge hedge, hedge funds and, and institutional investors who have seen anytime there's volatility, there's going to be winners and losers. Mm -hmm. and, and more often than not, the smart money is going to come out on top. So I'm sure there's tons of huge institutions and things that are that are uh, have their ears perked at this new development as well. Yeah, to, to that to that end, more the institutional side or the professionalized side of it. I've also been getting the emails and phone calls the last few weeks or really all 2022, basically, since the market has been down, you know, pretty significantly and all of the high flying tech stocks that made trading look so, so easy have, have cratered or they've had their, you know, day of reckoning and maybe they're recovering now, but like I'm getting hit up by people I spoke to over a year ago who ultimately decided they didn't want to hire a financial planner because they didn't want to be told what they could or couldn't or shouldn't do with their money. And now that things have gone awry, they're beginning to rethink a little bit. And since I know you uh, do quite a bit of work with uh, financial professionals in your, your, your day job, I'll ask you this. What can financial planners like me be doing or saying to the general public that will help them save themselves from themselves? Again, you see a, re a recurring theme, but in these types of situations, because we'll inevitably have another mass hysteria event like this in the coming years and then just rinse and repeat. Or said another way, is there a right way to help guard people from overconfidence bias, to use another proper term here, and believing too much in their own unproven abilities? Or do we all need to go through the experience of riding high and losing a substantial sum in order to have an appreciation for the patience and due diligence and professional research and such? Well, it's a, it's a great question because we sit uh, sort of on the precipice of a really unique moment in in terms of mom and pop investors, mm -hmm. because millions of new investors, this is kind of a good news, bad news, uh, with, with this whole COVID investing mania, millions of new investors entered the fray during the COVID meme stock investing mania. Mm -hmm. And disproportionately relative to history, they were black and brown folks, they were women, they were people who have been historically underrepresented uh, um, among the investment community. So the, the good news is new folks are discovering investing. Uh, and, and it's been by a large part, 
folks who have been historically underserved by Wall Street. So mm -hmm. the bad news is many of these new investors learned about it in exactly the wrong way. Like they learned about it by getting their hat handed to them by uh, super volatile stocks or learning, learning the wrong lessons and sort of getting involved in super risky stuff. Yeah. So to the extent that some of these folks have now been chastened by the volatility of these, of these super uh, volatile names, I do think there's a moment now where we can say, okay, we have lots of new folks on board. They've seen the power of markets for good and ill, and now let's help educate them to, to do things the right way. So when we look at the research around why people choose not to work with financial professionals, mm -hmm. the number one thing that they, they say leads people away from working with a financial advisor is fear of judgment. Mm -hmm. or fear mm -hmm. that they will be condescended to. So I think there's a danger that I'm frankly seeing in parts of the professional investing world where we look down our noses at these folks who just got into it and go, oh, look at you. Look, you made every dumb mistake in the book and you thought you were going to get rich and you didn't. Ha ha. And I mean, I think this is a time for us to extend a hand of fellowship, to lift people up, to educate, to teach them about the power of diversification and compounding and getting rich slowly. So I think this is a real moment and I, I don't want us to blow it by being arrogant or condescending or, or failing to recognize the moment for what it could be. I'm glad you framed it that way because that was actually a reminder to me. I have to remind myself to sometimes like from this platform, and from the perspective that I have as a, a certified financial planner, not to talk in ways that sound condescending like you're talking about, because I try to make sure that I approach things from a place of uh, education first. Um, but one of the things that I hear is I have to get myself together and then I'll call you, which is yeah. inherently counterintuitive, right? <laughs> That's like the people who say they have to get their life together before they go to church. Um, it, it just it flies in the face of what the actual outcome that you're trying to get is from uh, where it'll be most beneficial. But to the point you're, you were making, there's a study that was done in Canada that I am sure you're familiar with that shows where people who work with financial professionals actually end out with 2.7 times the wealth of those who don't. But my interpretation of that data is that the success has much less to do with that financial professional's investment prowess and more to do with making sure that clients actually get things done. Like, I could recommend to a client that they buy a mutual fund or ETF that outperforms the market by one or 2% every year, but that's far less valuable or additive to their overall net worth long-term than me making sure that they check the box on making you know, a $6,000 contribution to their IRA each year, for example. Would you agree with that assessment that that's where the real value that we should all be focusing on is? Yeah, I, I do agree. And I, I love that study because it actually it actually controlled um, for 50 different socioeconomic variables. So the, the group receiving financial advice and the group not receiving financial advice were compared to each other and sort of made apples to apples across you know, things like salary and wages and things like that. So it was a fair comparison. 
And what's cool is at five years, the group that had an advisor had one and a half times as much wealth. Mm -hmm. At 10 years, they had twice as much wealth. At 15 years plus, they had 2.73 times as much wealth as you suggested. And just like you suggested, when we drill down and look at the determinants that distinguish the one group from the other, it was really that those advisors kept the advised group in their seats and on the straight and narrow path three or four times in their life. And that's a weird thing to say because the, the, it shows that the advice an advisor provides can be lumpy. But you think about in the last two years, if your advisor kept you invested through March of 2020 and, and kept you around for the subsequent enormous gains, and then that advisor kept you invested this year, you know, the market was down, the NASDAQ was down about 20%, the S&P was down 12 or 13%, mm -hmm. the S&P is down 3%, you know, as of, as of this morning. Yeah. And so if that advisor had just held your hand and kept you steady and counseled you through those two things, odds are you will never repay them. You will, mm -hmm. those were, those were make or break moments in your financial life. And if you did the wrong thing, there's no bouncing back from it. And if you did the right thing, you'll never be able to pay that advisor back. So that that's what we find. People who work with financial advisors, they make more money to the tune of about 2.7 times, like you said, but they also are happier and they even have better marital communications. I just had mm -hmm. someone on my podcast uh, sharing her research that people who had an advisor had much higher levels of marital satisfaction and, and better marital communication because money touches every part of our lives. And if we can get our money right, everything else sort of tends to fall in place. Yeah. I can't think of a better uh, ringing endorsement and a better high note to go out on. So I won't uh, say much of anything to to undo what you just you just did there, making the case for folks to actually get uh, professional financial advice earlier on than they probably think they they should or could afford to or would need to. Um, I think the 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 real modification or change really just comes from the other side of that, because um, the interesting thing about those stats here laying out is that most financial planners will still uh, fall into that trap of trying to woo would-be clients by talking about how great they are at managing portfolios and outperforming mm. the market, which then goes against everything you and I just laid out and got folks excited about and uh, on board with and everything else. But uh, rather than chase you know, that, uh, that, that rabbit down that rabbit hole out, I'll stop there and just say, you know, thank you to you, Dr. Dan, um, for coming on and doing this. This was great. Um, where can people find you if they want to learn more about you after this goes live? Yeah, thank you again for having me. And thanks for all your preparation. Um, my podcast is called The Standard Deviations Podcast. Um, for everyday investors, my best book to read is probably The Laws of Wealth. And then I'm on Twitter at Daniel Crosby and on LinkedIn, uh, Daniel Crosby, PhD. Awesome. Well, with that, Eric with an A, why don't you go ahead and close us out, sir? 
This has been a great podcast. I, I'm so excited about the fact that it has a rewind button because <laughs> there's so much to learn. I'm still kind of hung up on when Dr. Daniel was talking about taking 10 minutes to eat a donut. I've never taken 10 minutes to eat a donut <laughs> in my life. Um, I'd like to learn how to do that. Uh, anyway, uh, again, Dr. Daniel, thank you so much for being on the show. Malcolm, of course, thank you for facilitating and bringing him on the show. And our last thank you goes to you, the listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Tech Money Podcast with Malcolm Etheridge. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Malcolm comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. We humbly ask that you share this podcast and leave a review as this will help others find the show. You can connect with Malcolm on social at Malcolm on Money. We'd love to hear from you and answer any questions you have, and you can do so by emailing them to podcast at techmoney.com. Thanks again for listening. For everyone at Tech Money, our hope is that this show helped make you a little smarter about your money. This has been the Tech Money Podcast. For more information on today's topic, to review the show notes, or to catch up on past episodes, be sure to check out malcolmetheridge.com slash podcast. And if you have an idea for a show topic that you'd like us to cover, or you want to send us feedback, the web address again is malcolmetheridge.com. You can also find Malcolm across all social media platforms at Malcolm on Money. This episode was written and created by Malcolm Etheridge, with the production, the editing and sound controls powered by Proudmouth. This has been a Malcolm on Money original. Thank you for listening. The information shared in this recording and by its guests represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not represent the views or opinions of the host. This content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. This content is not, nor is it intended to be a substitute for professional financial advice. It is always recommended that you seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your personal financial situation. This episode of the Tech Money Podcast is sponsored by Capital Area Tax Consultants. Capital Area Tax Consultants is a virtual tax and accounting firm that specializes in helping high net worth individuals navigate the complexities of the tax code. With our comprehensive tax planning services, our one goal is to help clients maximize savings and minimize their tax liability each year. Our team of certified public accountants and enrolled agents is well-versed in the latest tax laws, ensuring that you capitalize on every opportunity for strategic tax optimization. We anticipate changes and keep you up to date on opportunities to potentially reduce your tax bill in the future. With a focus on precision and strategic planning, we are your trusted partner both during tax season and throughout the year. So don't wait. Reach out to us today to experience a better approach to taxes at www.capgllc.com. Again, that web address is www.capgllc.com.